Okay, so I was conflicted emotionally when I came to church this morning, as many of you probably were. You share the same emotions as I did. I got a text from my son saying, Dad, Tom Brady retired. And my whole world went like, no, he said he was going to go one more year. And I'm not a Tom Brady fan. I mean, I, 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 couldn't, I hated Tom Brady until that Atlanta Super Bowl. And I was like, okay, okay, you can't stop greatness. So that was the sad part. But the happy part is, this is why I was emotionally conflicted. I won my first Peloton bike race yesterday. Oh, yeah. It was tremendous. I came out, busted out of the room. I announced it to everybody in the family, my wife and Ty. I won! I won! I won my first bike race. Crickets. Absolute crickets. So I couldn't wait to tell you because I knew you'd be excited for me. Yeah, thank you. Mom. Yeah, my mom's excited for me. All right. Several weeks ago, someone came up to me, one of you, after the service, and asked, where are the Levites and judges? In other words, where are the pastors and judges? Where are the spiritual leaders and judges? Where are the deacons and elders and judges? Where are the community groups and judges? Where's the worship team and judges? Where's the women's ministry and judges? Where's the youth ministry, the high school ministry? What are the Levites doing this whole time, I was asked? Now, we could say it this way. Where's the church and judges? What are the Christians doing in judges? That's what we could say. Are they relevant? Are the... Are the Christians relevant in judges? Is the church relevant in judges? And we know what relevant means. It doesn't mean having, I can't believe I used the word snazzy in the prayer. What is that? It doesn't mean fancy stuff that you're relevant. We learned in Galatians that a relevant church is a church that's on message. And we learned that that message is justification by faith. And there's only two messages in the world today. There's only two messages in the church today. You have justification by faith and justification by works. There's only two. There's all kinds of hybrids and splint-offs within these two realities, but that's it. And so to be a relevant Christian, to be a relevant church, you have to be on message, Paul says. Because the mission, the ministry, is the message. Because the message makes the church. So are the, are the Levites, are the Christians, are the churches relevant in judges, or are they off mission? Are they off message? So where is the church in judges? What are the Christians doing in judges? And Judges 19 says, you don't want to know. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. It's a long read. If you get tired, you can sit down. All right, so in those days, who, those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. 
and his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there for four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and it remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two men sat down and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. When it means says, let your heart be merry, this is a drinking party, just so you know. And when the man rose up, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, strengthen your heart and wait till the day declines. So they ate both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here, let your heart be merry, let's drink again. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys and his concubine was with him. And when they were near Jebus, now Jebus at this time is, is not in Israelite hands, it's in Canaanite hands. So it's a Canaanite city just because it's Jerusalem. I just, you just need to know that. The day was nearly over and the servant said to his master, come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, we will not turn aside to the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah, which is an Israelite town. And he said to the young man, come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night in Gibeah. And he went in and he sat down in the open square of the city for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. And the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites, and he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem and Judah and the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw. And feed for our donkeys and bread and wine for me and for your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed. And they washed their feet and ate and drank. And as they were making their hearts merry, you got the point. Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows. What are worthless fellows? Literally, they are sons. Literally, the translation is sons of emptiness, sons of nothingness. But it's also a trick because it's a Babylonian word. It's a Babylonian word for the goddess of Sheol, the underworld, the land that you don't return from. These are sons of Sheol. These dudes surrounded the house beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man 
has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here's a better idea. Here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them. Rape them. And do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this dangerous, outrageous thing. Now, what happens next is incredibly disturbing. And again, some of you have experienced what we're about to look at. And it might trigger your need to, to talk. So I want you to know you can come talk to me. You can come talk to Colin. You can talk to someone up here. I'll stay around a little later for the service. Uh, we will connect you. We'll put together a plan of help if that's you. And we'll connect you to people that certainly understand exactly where you're coming from. Okay? So come see me. But the men, the sons of Sheol, would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman fell, came and fell at the door of the man's house where the, her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, behold. Remember, behold means pay attention. There she was, his concubine, lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up. It's time to go. But there was no answer. Then he put her on a donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from, that, from the day that the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel and speak. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, what a disturbing text. I ask that you would fill us with your spirit to actually move through uh, the muck and mire of this text. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So where is the church in Judges? What are the Christians doing in Judges? I told you, you don't want to know. So how do we move through this text? I mean, how do we do this? I told you that, you know, I, I gave you the option that we might not do this last portion of Judges. So here we are, we're doing it. Because we're committed to preaching the Bible. We're committed to you experiencing Jesus with the Bible. We're not committed to you experiencing Jesus with a tradition and Jesus with a liturgy. And Je we're committed to Jesus being experienced by faith with the Bible. So here we are. First, here's how we move through the text. Do not pretend you know why this is in the Bible. You do not. Second, do not pretend you can unlock all its secrets. You can't. So how do we move through this text? Well, the first thing I can think of is we've got to move through this text with honesty. We have to let it be what it is. What is it? It's a dark mystery. 
So first, we need to be honest. We need to let it be what it is. We need to let it be a dark mystery. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do the first part of this sermon. Answer number two, how do we move through this text? Well, you move through this text with honesty. Let it be what it is. It's a dark mystery. Then we need to, we need to move through it with humility. Let God's message rise from the ashes. And that's how we'll end. So, this is a dark mystery. Let it be what it is. Let's start with mystery number one. What is it? Well, it's the mystery of the marriage, is it not? In those days, there was, a man, there was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country who had a concubine and her husband. I mean, what's going on here? What is this marriage? What is this relationship? What is going on here? Who's the woman? Well, she's a concubine in verse 1. Do you see that? She's a wife in verse 3. She's a slave in verse 27. That's reference to her husband and her master. So she's referenced only in light of her husband. So what's going on in this marriage? Well, a concubine in the ancient world was a second wife. And it was a second wife for sex. So in historical politeness, we call her a mistress. In today's more modern impolite language... We say she's a sex slave. She's human trafficked. Then there's the meaning of verse 2 and 3. Do you see that? Literally, here's the meaning. And his concubine played the whore and she left him. And then finally, there's the meaning of the four months. We're still trying to figure out this relationship, right? Why did it take him so long to look for his wife? Well, we're not told. I mean, did he miss her? Did he miss her cooking? Did he miss the sex? We're not told. So what is the mystery of this marriage? There's a woman named Pamela Rice. She's the judge's scholar. She suggests this. You ready? She suggests that verse 2 should be read this way. And his concubine whored for him. That means he's pimping her. So the meaning of the marriage would look like this. She's human trafficked, first. Second, she's looking for a way out. Third, she escapes to her father. Fourth, this whatever he is comes sweet-talking her to get her to come back with him. This seems to fit the text. But whatever's going on in this marriage, we do know this. This is a loveless marriage and God made marriage for a husband and a wife to love each other to life he designed it and fashioned it for two people to love each other to life This is a dark mystery. Let it be what it is. Second, there's the mystery of the family. What is going on with this father? Seriously, what is going on with him? Doesn't he seem to be a little too enthusiastic to see this dude? I mean, look at this. Look at verse 3. When the girl's father saw him, 
he came with joy to meet him and made him stay. Then in verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, he keeps throwing a party for him. They are drinking buddies. So you're a father, let's say. You're a father, and four months ago, your married daughter, whom you love with your whole being, surprises you and just shows up on your doorstep. No text, no tweet, no Instagram post, certainly no phone call. Who talks on the phone these days besides me? There we go. Good. We're, we're in the same tribe. You're my people. Good. She's just there. You take one look at her, this is not good. And over the next four months, she unpacks horror after horror after horror, things we don't speak of. And over the next four months, you watch her not eat, not sleep. Over the next four months, you hold her while she shakes with shame. You hold her while she shatters to pieces right before your very eyes. And then all of a sudden, the dude that brought all this misery into your daughter's life is there on your front porch. When the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him and made him stay, and they partied for five days. If he was a loving father, it would read this way. When the girl's father saw him, he knew then and there deep in his bones like he never knew anything else on this planet that God was calling him to prison ministry. <laughs> if, if, if he loved his daughter. And if you don't think that's the right response, come talk to me. What is going on with the father? Another judge's scholar suggests this. The father loves his honor more than he loves his daughter. See, this is a shame culture. So your daughter sleeps around, shame on the father. Your daughter divorces or abandons her husband, shame on the father. So in a shame culture, the father can either take the shame, which means he loves his daughter more, or avoid the shame, which means he loves his honor more and then does everything in his power to appease this whatever he is for a human being. Whatever's going on with this family, we know this. This is a loveless family. God made fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and grandparents and cousins. God made families to love each other to life. This is a dark mystery. Let it be what it is. Third, there's a mystery of the community. So these are the people outside the family. These are the relationships and the connectedness of people outside families. So these are the friendships in the community. These are the 
friendships in the communities in church and school and on the ball field and in the music hall and at work and every kind of place and culture, whatever the places and culture are, these are the web of relationships and the way that we one another in our community, in our culture, in Waco, in the United States, all around the world. So you have this mysterious marriage, leave a mysterious family and travel into a mysterious culture. Now, for anyone traveling I-35 North, the first stop would be Jebus. But it's a Canaanite city, which means the people in there don't believe in God, which means the people there don't follow God, which means the people there don't read their Bibles and they don't pray to God, which means the people there don't walk in the Spirit, talk in the Spirit, dance in the Spirit, nothing in the Spirit. Jebus is an unchurched place. So the Levite says, we will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. In other words, it's safer in the church. We're not going there. Let's go to the church. The first clue the church is not safe is when no one speaks to them. No one welcomes them. No one shows hospitality to them, invites them in, takes them in. Now, we modern people think, what's the big deal? Just get a hotel, you losers. Well, in the ancient world, Priceline.com was the town square. Orbitz was the town square. Do you need a place to stay? You go to the town square, and you stand in the town square, which is in the center of the community, and the community looks and says, hey, we got some visitors, people traveling. And so someone says, hey, Susie, you got room in your barn? Yes. Hey, there's a great family over here. Take them in. Looks like they have. They can, they, looks like they brought some supplies. They can bring something to the party. And that's how it worked. The catch is the longer you waited in the town square, the worse it looked on your community. The second clue the church is not a safe place is the creepy old dude. The creepy old dude limps toward them like right out of some horror flick. Don't spend the night in the town square. Beware the dude with the Michael Myers mask and the chainsaw. That's the old dude. What's wrong with this town? What's wrong with this community? We don't have to wait long at verse 22. And they were making their hearts merry. Behold, the men of the city, worthless, worthless fellows, sons of Sheol, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. This is bad. But this is worse. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out, violate them, and do to them what seems good to you. In other words, rape them instead. This is bad, but this is worse. But the men would not listen to him. So the man, the Levite, the husband, the church, the church dude, seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night long until the morning. And as dawn break, they let her go. She appears, falls down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Then he, the Levite, the husband, the church dude, said to her, get up, it's time to go. She doesn't move. He puts her on her donkey. 
takes her home, cuts her up, and we all hope she was already dead. What's going on in this community? Whatever it is, we know this. It's a loveless community. Because God made communities of the children of the earth, the sons and daughters of the Adam, the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, to connect with each other, to be friends, to build things, to create things, to do it together in a connected way, to love the earth back to life, to love it to life, not even back to life, to love it to life. And that's obviously not going on here. So this is a dark mystery. We just saw the dark mystery. What's next? We need to let God's message rise from the ashes. It's God's message. And it rises from these ashes. So here it is. Did you notice that none of the characters are named in the text? Did you see that? These are nameless people. No one's named. Now, remember, we know that when patterns break in judges, it's like bones breaking in a text. You're like, ouch, that hurt, because you're meant to pay attention to it. Pay attention. Look at this. Behold, this hasn't happened before. This is crucial literary, theological frameworks, interpretations. And so this is the first time that characters are not named in Judges. None of them. Even in the earlier chapter, the dude's name, the Levite's name was Micah. But here it's a certain Levite. This means that the marriage and the family in this text are not only real historically, but they're real symbolically. You know what that means? It means this. This is definitely a real historical Marriage, people, community. But it's also symbolically, because there are no names, representing all the marriages, all the family, all the communities in Israel, all the schools, all the ball teams, all the gyms, all the bookstores, all the grocery stores, all the institutions, the whole culture. In other words, Judges 19 is saying to you and me from this text, there is a Levite in all of us. You know, the Bible doesn't just tell you, hey, you're a sinner. It does that. It doesn't just tell you. It doesn't just say, hey, you fall so far, 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 far short of the glory of God. It doesn't just tell you. The Bible shows you. You're a Levite. A certain Levite. Let God's message rise from the ashes. Here it is. You are a Levite. I am a Levite. We're sons and daughters of Sheol. This is a dark mystery. We need to let God's message rise from the text. Look at verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was 
Verse 1 ultimately explains the dark mystery. Do you see that? It frames everything. It's saying that verse 1 explains what happens in marriages, what happens in families, what happens in communities, what happens in cultures when there is no king. But not just any kind of king. I mean, everything in the story hangs on verse 25. Do you see it? But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. Everything in the story hangs on who will go outside. Will the old man go outside? Will his virgin daughter go outside? Will the servant of the Levite go outside? Will the Levite himself go outside? Or will his wife go outside? What does a loving husband do? What do loving brothers and grandfathers and bystanders and clerks and employees and employers and church leaders and pastors and moms and dads and brothers and sisters, what do they do? What do loving people do? They go outside. <coughs> In Israel's history, good kings went outside, bad kings did not. The most epic example which Judges is preparing Israel for is David and Saul. Saul shakes and trembles in his tent because outside is Goliath. And David says to the trembling Saul, I will go out. You know what's interesting? Just a side note. You know when David sins with Bathsheba? Do you remember that? Pretty gruesome. Another thing that you wish wasn't in the Bible. But this is us on display. It says this. The Bible begins that section just when David is about ready to commit his infamous sin. This is what it says. In the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle. David sent Joab. He didn't go out. Good kings go out. Loving people go out. Bad ones do not. So when Jesus was sentenced to be crucified, the Bible says Jesus was delivered over to be crucified. And then it says they took Jesus and they, they arrest him. They put him on trial. They sentenced Jesus. They condemned Jesus. They whipped Jesus. They beat Jesus. They disfigured Jesus. They dragged Jesus. They flail him and rip the skin off Jesus. His bones are exposed on Jesus. They dehumanized Jesus. But when it came time for the cross, when it, when it came time for the ultimate Goliath, the text says, and he went out to the place called the skull. Who will go outside? The ultimate king. The true king. 
Oh, I will. I will go out every time. I will go out and I will be ravaged for your sin. I will go out and be ravaged because of the judgment against you for your sin. And I will do it for you. You know how this whole story changes? You know how your life changes? You know how my life changes? You know how our relationships change? Your friendships, your marriage, your church, your culture, our communities. You know how they change? They change when you and I see with clarity in our minds and realness in our hearts that Jesus doesn't push you outside. He goes outside. And when that happens, you know what happens? You start becoming a go-outside person. And now in your marriage, I'll go outside, honey. And now in your parenting, I'll go outside, sweetie. And in your friendships, I'll go outside. In your church, I'll go outside. At work, I'll go outside. Who will go outside? Isn't that what our culture is screaming today? Who? Who will go outside? All throughout the Bible, the people who were on mission said, Oh Lord, send me. We're done. Let me pray for us.